Welcome to Parallax by Anchor Calra, a podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology and the best from the US Cardiology Review. Published every second Monday, Anka Kalra, MD, interventional cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, USA, speaks with legendary cardiologists, reviews late-breaking trials, and interviews authors of our latest and best US cardiology review articles. We call them hashtag audio articles. Parallax is the effect whereby the position or direction of an object appears to differ when viewed from different positions. So this podcast is your fix of reliable updates on all things cardiology by someone from a non-traditional background who is always looking at the industry from a new angle. Now, here's your host, Anka Kalra, MD. Uh, hello, everyone. Um, it's um, us again. Uh, happy New Year. Happy New Decade. Um, we're back after a brief hiatus. This is season two, episode one. Um, we wish all of you um, a very happy new year and a happy decade. I wanted to start this um, second season uh, with uh, a focus on women in medicine. Uh, you know, we've uh, been uh, very fair. Um, you know, that's the feedback that we received from our listenership and our audience that we've been very fair in dividing the platform and, and the pedestal, if you will, if at all, this is a platform for dissemination of um, roles that women play in medicine. You know, I'm grateful for, for this platform that we've been able to create this platform for women to you know, share their experiences um, with, with our audience. Um, so at, at Ratcliffe and um, at Parallax, you know, we deliberately uh, for the second season wanted to focus uh, our initial guests, um, um, in, in, in them being women. So I'm, I'm very uh, grateful, um, uh, that our first guest, um, uh, happens to be a phenomenal woman. Uh, we haven't met in person. I've, I've only known her through her work and obviously, um, you know, the ubiquitous social media. Um, and so my, my guest, um, for this show is, um, Dr. Grubb. Kendra Grubb is assistant professor at Emory University. Um, she is the surgical director of the structural heart and valve program at Emory University. Um, and, um, you know, I, I was really, um, I had known her through her incredible work, but what, what really uh, impressed uh, me about, about her and, and when we were doing our search for getting uh, the guests on board uh, for season two was the picture that she shared on, on LinkedIn, I believe. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll let Kendra speak more about this. Uh, that actually got viral and uh, it, it showed that uh, there was an all-women team in, in a complex uh, structural heart procedure. So, you know, with that introduction, Kendra, welcome. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. And thank you for this opportunity. Um, it's, uh, it's, been, it's a great honor to be on your show. Um, yeah, that p photo that I sent was really fun. Um, I had the rare opportunity uh, to, I have the rare opportunity to be a part of an all-woman implant team at Emory. Uh, Asita Buku was our Structural Heart Fellow last year, and she's just absolutely outstanding as an interventional cardiologist and a real compliment uh, to our team. And we were lucky enough to hire her. And so our very first case together was in September. And I wanted to document this rare occurrence where two female attendings are doing a TAVR 
And uh, it turns out that actually everyone in the room was female. The uh, echosonographer was female. The circulator was female. Uh, the the uh, rad tech, and then the two of us. And so, of course, this picture captures some of this. And it was really fun. Um, I thought I was just going to post it to LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook and kind of my circle of friends and colleagues. And it really took off, um, as you as you mentioned, uh, kind of went viral. And it's been seen by over 100,000 people um, and comments by nearly that many. The last I looked, somewhere between 65 and 70 different countries represented and the people that have either seen it or responded to it on some social media platform. And I think what that shows is that you know the, it is time for women to be recognized for the work we're doing in medicine. Um, you know, part of me wishes that picture wasn't novel, right? It, it would be great to think that an all-female team is something that is typical. And I think in future generations it will become so. But for right now, there aren't that many teams uh, where this entire structural team is all women. Yes, no, uh, thank you for uh, sharing the um, background story behind that uh, that photograph and you know, congratulations that the, the photograph has been downloaded or at least viewed in 70 odd countries. Um, you know, when we were talking off the record, um, you know, last year, Parallax was downloaded in 50 odd countries. So, you know, um, again, it, it is my absolute privilege that the story continues to grow um, and reach as many countries as feasible. Um, you know, so let's um, let's take a step back um, and talk a little bit about your journey to that, that photograph, um, you know, how did you get to where you are currently in your role? Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure we can count on, on our fingertips, the number of women who are in a role similar to yours. And, 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 you know, it's, it's incredible that, you know, you share that role and, um, are able to perform both the surgical aspect of implants as well as the, the interventional or the transcatheter heart valve aspect of implants. So tell us, a, tell us a bit more about, you know, your childhood growing up, uh, what were the influences in your life um, and what led you to pursue a path in, in medicine, you know, broadly speaking, and then uh, pursue uh, surgery um, as a specialty? Oh, sure. So um, I am somebody who um, I guess was lucky in some regards in that I declared at quite a young age that I wanted to be a surgeon. I, I didn't ever tell people that I necessarily wanted to be a doctor, um, but my father's veterinary practice was in our home, and as a small child, I watched him operate, and, and he was, of course, operating on animals, but I knew immediately that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a surgeon, and then it was just the, the steps in order to make that happen, and so I did my undergrad master's in medical school at the University of Southern California. I then did general surgery training um, at the University of Illinois at Chicago. And even when I started general surgery training, I was not 100% sure what specialty I wanted to um, proceed with training. Um, and um, it wasn't until my second year of general surgery training where it was late in the year, the, I was on the cardiothoracic surgery service. 
the fellow was out interviewing and I got to really first assist the attending physician. And in the operating room on the heart lung machine, doing bypass grafts, doing valves as the assistant, that's where kind of I, I realized the impact that cardiac surgery or really any cardiology or interventional cardiology, what the impact could be. And it was that impact factor where if I do a really good job, I could actually add years to somebody's life. And that really drew me to that field. And since then, really never looked back. I'd mentioned that I have a master's. I had gone to business school before I went to medical school. I have a master's of health administration. And one of the things that I took away from that is that you need to have a niche. And I think that when I left general surgery training, it was with the intent to become a robotic cardiac surgeon. Um, there was a lot of uh, talk about robotics in cardiac surgery. There was a lot of really cool things happening. And I saw that as the way to go. And so during general surgery training, I actually had the opportunity to be robotically trained in general surgery. But also about that same time, of course, transcatheter valves. The partner's trial started in 2007, and that was just in the middle of my um, general surgery training. And so, in fact, when I went out to interview for cardiac surgery spots, serendipitously, I was at Emory University and interviewing with Robert Guyton. And he said, oh, I have to run to the operating room to do this case. It's really interesting. Do you want to come with me? And I said, I absolutely want to come with you. And so I put on my bunny suit and headed to the operating room. And they were doing one of the transcatheter valves early in the partner trial. Transfemoral, general anesthesia, femoral artery cut down, all the way that it was done at that time with the huge sheath. But it was magic to me. And I immediately recognized this is the future of cardiac surgery and cardiac interventions, and I have to be part of it. So um, that ended up, I ended up not training at Emory. I ended up going to um, University of Virginia for my cardiac surgery training, but took every opportunity to participate in the transcatheter cases and anything endovascular, TVARs, anything that I could do with catheters and wires. Um, as I was finishing my CV surgery training, there was the opportunity to do additional training in structural heart. Um, and one of the only centers that was really training surgeons, not just in structural heart, but interventional cardiology was Columbia. And they had trained a handful of people. And um, I applied and had the opportunity to spend a year with the team at Columbia doing interventional cardiology. I mean, I actually took STEMI call and did PCI and left and right heart cats. Um, operated one day a week just to keep my skills up, and then was immersed in transcatheter therapies for that year, um, TAVRs, MitraClips, and a whole host of trial devices at Columbia. And it gave me a really unique skill set. As I was sitting in uh, New York City deciding what my next step was going to be, it was the option of stay at a center like Columbia and kind of grow up through the ranks or go to a site and help them build a program similar to what I was seeing at Columbia. And I had a tremendous opportunity to go to the University of Louisville and Jewish Hospital and help build their TAVR program. 
They'd done about 50 tavers in two years when I got there. And we quickly um, uh, ramped up. I, I was very lucky in some regards in that the surgeon I was hired to help build the program within six months took a job in Pennsylvania. And so I had my little startup and got to kind of build it how I wanted with a tremendous team of people um, where, you know, by our 150th TAVR at that institution, we were totally awake, monitored anesthesia care, next day discharge, totally percutaneous. We became um, an optimals training site for both commercially available valves and were attracting uh, various devices. It was a really exciting time. Um, subsequently, Emory um, was going through a consolidation, trying to build a center of excellence model. They had a tremendous history in structural heart, but had three separate high volume centers. And it's just hard to resource three centers. And so by consolidating resource around one hub with two other feeder programs, um, you're able to use your resources a little bit more effectively and hopefully treat a lot more patients and get them in and out of the system. And so I came on board in uh, 2018 to help with that consolidation, which is ongoing, but we have seen tremendous growth. And so now I enter a new phase where it's not just about building a TAVR program, but it's truly about taking TAVR that's a 10-year-old um, program, more than that, than that now, and evolving to the next phase. And so we are becoming the center for the no-option patient, trying to come up with novel techniques to treat patients who've literally been turned down all over the country. We have a unique relationship with the NIH where we are able to assess a patient, come up with a possible solution, use our um, colleagues at the NIH to kind of backbench it and animal test it, and then with pretty quick turnaround, be able to try it in a human through a joint IRB with Emory and the NIH, which is a really, really exciting place to be. Normally, when you identify a unique problem, you have to go to industry and ask for compassionate use or um, some other type of trial design, and it takes a tremendous amount of time. And this cuts that time um, down to usually less than a month. And so it's really exciting to be part of this forefront, this innovation. But at the same time, I kind of grew up with TAVR. It's been my entire career. And now what am I looking for is not the next TAVR device, but how do we look at lifetime management of patients with structural heart disease? So the decision that I make today is building the platform for what's going to happen in the future. And with the FDA approval of low risk, this only becomes that much more important. I need to be putting in a platform that I can build another valve on. I need to be positioning that valve so that a valve and valve is possible. And then I, of course, need to be cognizant of the other uh, valvular pathologies. So if I land a valve too low and interfere with the anterior leaflet of the mitral valve, is that going to make it impossible if that patient develops mitral disease down the road? It's going to make it impossible to do an intervention. Um, of course, everyone is concerned about coronary reaccess. And so there are a whole host of things now that we have a mature technology I'm interested in. How do we make that technology safer? How do we make it better? What implant techniques can we change to really optimize that valve for that patient and their experience. 
Um, so thank you for uh, taking us through your journey. It's, um, you know, obviously very inspirational and uh, impressive. Um, quite a few questions that I, you know, I was um, thinking of when you were, um, you know, going through um, your journey of becoming uh, the surgical director of the Structural Heart and Valve Program at Emory. Um, so my, my, my first question to you is, what is your perception when it comes to women uh, in general surgery or cardiac surgery versus women in cardiovascular disease and interventional cardiology is, do you think that that distribution is sort of more, um, um, you know, balanced with regard to surgical specialties or is there still paucity of women uh, in, in surgery compared with, for example, we know that in interventional cardiology, the ratio of, um, women pursuing this subspecialty is abysmally low. Um, what is your sense of, uh, and you know, what, what is your perception one? And are, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure I, I'm not aware of the surgical literature, literature and, and data that, that support the percentage of women that pursue surgery as a specialty. So maybe you can help us or help the audience educate, uh, educate us about that. Sure. Well, I, I think that um, times are changing, you know, over 50% of, medical school classes tend to be female. And in general surgery, we're seeing the numbers increase. More than 50% of my general surgery graduating class was female. And I think that entering into surgery in general, you're seeing a lot more women. And I think that it's probably fairly balanced. But when you get to the subspecialties, that's where you're seeing um, the, the decrease in number of women entering the fields. So to put it into perspective, um, I, there was just a report out that only about four and a half percent of women are um, represent are represented in interventional cardiology. So only four and a half percent of interventional cardiologists are female. If you look at cardiac surgery, it's a little bit hard to say exactly what that number is. And so I will just say, of all of thoracic surgery, there are only five percent women, um, and and that's counting all of the ones that just do thoracic esophagus and lung, as well as all the ones that go into congenital. And so, I mean, the numbers are low. I, I feel like there are more women going into cardiothoracic surgery, um, more women going into cardiac, certainly. If I look at my own fellowship, uh, women are well, actually, uh, residency and fellowship at Emory, women are well represented. Um, but that being said, it wasn't that long ago where there really were no women. And, and the bigger problem was there were no women leaders. And that's really changed rapidly, even within the last few years, um, with women being promoted to levels of leadership where they're chiefs and, and chairmen. Um, and I think that exposure allows for more women to be um, willing to enter the field. Uh, it seems crazy to me, but you know, the first woman that was uh, board certified in thoracic surgery was in the 60s. And of all time, I'm only the 250th woman board certified in thoracic surgery. Um, so you're talking about really low numbers. But with more women in leadership, more uh, exposure that there are other women out there, I think that you will see an uptick in the number of women willing or, or wanting to go into the field. 
Yes. So, I mean, wow, you know, 5% and 4.5%, those are fairly equally matched numbers. And, uh, you know, it's it's a little disappointing that, you know, it's taken the field, it's taken all of us that long um, to welcome, uh, you know, women, colleagues into our uh, specialties and subspecialties. Uh, but I'm glad that, you know, women like yourself are uh, representing and becoming uh, the face of modern cardiovascular disease and interventional cardiology and cardiac surgery and um, are, you know, the the flag bearers, if you will, for the generations to come by to look, you know, for, like you said, um, to have role models and leaders in the field to look up to and, you know, to, to be able to write to, to, to be able to ha- have a conversation with, uh, you know, as to what, what is it like to be, um, a woman in that role. So, I mean, what is it, what is it like to be a woman in that role? I mean, what are some of the obstacles that you faced, um, in your journey? Um, has it been hard for you to be able to convince to, uh, you know, mentors, program directors, your peers, or even patients that, you know, you, um, are, um, equally deserving, competent, um, you know, erudite uh, individual physician to be able to take on this role and um, and you know to do do justice to it and, and excel in it. And I'm and I'm asking this question because you know I not that I have any doubts um, you, you know on the abilities of my of my women um, you know physician colleagues. You know, my wife is is um, an ophthalmology resident, so she is in a surgical specialty. Um, uh, so, you know, I have a lot of respect for, for women who pursue surgery. I, you know, it, it requires a lot of character, but you know, what I've heard from my friends uh, or peers is, is this perception, uh, you know, mostly from, I would assume mostly from patients and, and their, their caretakers, but also from colleagues um, that, you know, there may be a difference in, um, uh, in, in how you may handle uh, a certain stressful situation. So, you know, enlighten me, educate me, and also educate our listenership about the obstacles that you may have faced uh, in this journey of yours. I mean, I'd be really curious to have, you know, a, a personal log of your of your uh, professional exchanges and experiences. Well, that's a very interesting question. I will tell you the bonus of being a woman in cardiac surgery is there's never a, a line for the ladies' room at any major meeting. Uh, so that's one of the benefits. Um, I will say, I think, um, you know, even though there were many, many women um, before me, um, I still found myself, especially as I was going through my early, early career, being the only woman in the room. And that has to be something that you just decide you're okay with. Um, I have always surrounded myself with very strong women, a lot of type A female friends. My mother is a very strong personality. And, you know, I think that just being willing to be the only women in the room and, and to be able to speak up and assert yourself and know that you earn that seat at the table uh, is, the biggest, is the biggest hurdle initially. Um, I was the first woman trained at UVA in cardiac surgery, which is crazy to think. It's a very old program. Um, and basically, on the day of our interview, uh, Dr. Irv Krohn, instead of doing individual interviews, he was the... Um, the chief, um, the ch- chair of the department, um, he um, sat in the room with all of the applicants and he said, does anybody have any questions? And like typical, 
residents with a high profile cardiac surgeon in front of us, nobody said anything. Well, I knew I didn't have anything to lose. And so I raised my hand and I said, I actually do have a question, sir. I want to know why you've never trained a woman. Mm. And I just put it out there. I had nothing to lose. And so he gave a really good explanation. He'd actually hired a consulting firm to come in and figure out why they'd never trained a woman, as well as why they'd never trained an African-American. And um, they actually didn't find anything specific uh, wrong with the program. There was not discrimination going on. In fact, he had a female attending thoracic surgeon on his staff and a female attending vascular surgeon on his staff. Um, but for whatever reason, there was a barrier to entry perceived by the applicants. And um, so I told them I would volunteer to be the first. And somehow it worked out that way for me. But I think that that's the first hurdle is that you have to be willing to put yourself in a really awkward situation. You have to be willing to be the only woman at the table on a, in a lot of meetings. Still today, I'm seven years into my career. And I will go to certain meetings for advisory boards or uh, thought groups or whatever. And I will still be the only woman in the room. Um, And that's, you know, I'm fine with it. That's just how it's always been. Uh, But I can appreciate where young um, physicians coming up through the ranks, it would seem challenging not to have anybody else in the room that was also female. Um, In terms of some of the other barriers, I think that just like any um, minority group, whether you're brown or yellow or purple skin or female, if you look different than the majority, people define you by your difference as as opposed to by your similarity. So instead of people saying, oh, she's a cardiac surgeon that also does interventional cardiology and transcatheter therapies. I often get labeled, oh, she's a female cardiac surgeon or she's a female surgeon. And, um, you know, I have had uh, patients say, well, I don't want a lady doctor. And, you know, I think that with education and explaining that, you know, I have this special skill set and this is what I have to offer, uh, explaining the risk and benefits of the procedure and exactly the same way that my male colleagues would do. I have yet to have a patient that did not understand that I was equally as trained and equally as capable and competent as my male colleagues. Um, But it is, it's something you deal with. I mean, still to this day, if I walk in the room with a medical student um, and they have their little short coat on and I have my long white coat and we walk into an older patient's room, they will often address my male medical student as if he's the physician. Um, And and like I mentioned, I'm seven years into practice. Those things will just take time. As the number of women in the field increase, it will not seem as unusual for females to be doctors, certainly not as unusual for females to be cardiac surgeons or interventional cardiologists. Um, mm. But those times are changing. Yes, it's, it's interesting, your last comment. I mean, does that, does that perturb you emotionally? Does that, does that anger you? No, I think uh, I got over it in general surgery residency. Um, because it's happened all along. So even as far back as in general surgery residency in Chicago, that would happen. Um, now that I'm in the South, um, I think that I would, I would guess it would even be more predominant. Um, but I, I don't really pay attention to it anymore. So it doesn't really phase me. 
Um, and, and I actually love it when the medical student jumps in and is able to answer the questions. And, and then when they get hung up because the question's a little bit beyond their knowledge, then I can step in and say, well, actually, here's the rest of what the student didn't tell you. Um, and so I think it's a learning experience for everyone. I, I don't take offense to it. Yes, um, you know, it's, it's, an, it's, it's unfortunate that, you know, it has come this far. Um, you know, I, yeah, I mean, I mean I, I'm raised, uh, I was raised by my, my mother and, you know, our, our house has a, has a lot of, um, you know, women, women influence. So my mother always taught me that if, um, you know, a woman can, um, can give birth to a new life, a woman can pretty much do anything else. Uh, which I, I completely agree with. <laughs> um, I think that's a, uh, that's a great uh, uh, example. Um, my mother would say that I could do anything that I wanted to do as long as I was willing to work hard enough. Um, and, you know, I, I think that there are, of course, some limitations to that, but um, I, uh, I firmly believe that you can be whatever you want to be anymore. Um, actually, another funny story that I shared on social media was that I was um, on a panel at the American Heart Association moderating the scientific sessions, and one of the interventional cardiologists in the audience had brought his niece, who was 17 years old, very bright, talented. She's an athlete. She's an excellent student, and she has her eyes set on NASA. And he brought her, trying to convince her that cardiac, uh, cardiology or being a physician was the way to go. And he wrote me a lovely message about the experience with her there and her commenting on me being on the panel. Um, and, you know, it was, it was just really cute to have this, you know, 17-year-old, uh, hopefully future astronaut saying, oh, my gosh, there's a woman uh, on the panel at this meeting. So um, it's coming around. Yeah, it's all about perceptions and um, and somewhat just getting enough people in the field so that it's not unusual anymore. Getting back to the original picture we discussed, I look forward to the day that that picture isn't novel, that it's commonplace to have two women on a structural heart team putting in a new valve. Yes, no, I, you know, kudos to you um, for sharing that uh, picture. You know, I think the way it was, you know, even I've, I've looked at that picture um, you know, on LinkedIn, on your LinkedIn account. And, you know, I think the way it was, uh, it was taken and the way it was shot was, it was somehow it was very powerful. And I, I think, um, it, it deserves the, the accolades and, and, the the distribution and the admiration that it has received. Uh, you know, it, it, it just makes a very bold, um, statement. Um, and, and I, you know, it, it does not, you know, I, I say bold. I mean, it does not have to be bold. You know, it's, you know, at the end of the day, we're all physicians taking care of patients. But, you know, just some of the um, archetypical prototype that it breaks, you know, almost like screams at a at a glass ceiling. It just totally shatters it. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's why it's so powerful. So, you know, thank you for thank you for sharing all the anecdotes with, with our audience. Um, I'm going, going to ask you... Um, a couple more questions, uh, you know, just, uh, just to close the interview and, you know, thanks again for, uh, being with us on the show, uh, and, you know, allowing us the privilege to open the, the second season, uh, with your interview. 
this may this may come across as an uncomfortable question, so I apologize up front if it is uncomfortable. But you know, I think TCTMD and Yale Maxwell, uh, you know, they've written about it, uh, and that's the the Me Too movement in in medicine. And um, I wanted to ask you if you've come across um, this in in your own training, or you know, while you were training to be uh, a general surgeon, a cardiothoracic surgeon. Uh, or you know, acquiring skills in the in the cardiac catheterization laboratory, or know of colleagues or peers who've gone through such tough emotions, because I think it's important to uh, you know for leaders like yourself to to bring these out um, into the light and actually discuss uh, these so that you know people who aren't aware become more aware, uh, you know, so that if I'm not aware, I'm more aware and more sensitized to such situations for my, for my colleagues or for my peers. Well, yeah. And I, and I think that probably every woman in medicine has probably experienced uh, maybe not some true sexual harassment, but comments that are inappropriate things that just shouldn't be said in a professional setting. And when you get into surgery, a lot of it is, is so much the old boys club. Um, but we are at a level of sophistication now where locker room talk and all of that. It's just not appropriate. It's not appropriate in any workplace. And it's certainly not appropriate in the operating room. Um, and, and, you know, there, there were times when that kind of old boys mentality, if you, if you don't like it, then, you know, you can choose a different profession. That was okay to say. Um, and it's not okay anymore. And I do have the ability to say, you know what, that's really sexist. That's unprofessional. Um, and, in reality, I mean, at this stage in my career, if another colleague said something off color and it was, and it was something that was inappropriate, unprofessional, sexist, um, the, the person that I would worry about most is not me. It's the female medical student standing in the room who should never, ever in her life hear that. She should mm-hmm. never be treated that way because we're more sophisticated than that. So, yes, I mean, certainly had all kinds of, you know, locker room talk um, types of conversations uh, in and around me. Um, you know, some of the things uh, that people would say in general surgery that are, that are meant to be funny but aren't funny. You're a pretty decent surgeon for a girl. I mean, even that is inappropriate. Uh, my colleagues referring to me as a lady doctor I mean, that's inappropriate. We are, we are more sophisticated than that and deserve to be treated as equals. Um, but when you get to the Me Too movement and you're truly talking about sexual harassment and those types of things, I'm, I'm probably fortunate that I've never had uh, any overt harassment, but there was always undertones. Like I said, the locker room talk and the comments, it's just as inappropriate if you were, as if you were saying something directly. So, I mean, you know, just, just hearing about that just aggravates me, you know, as, as a, as a person just aggravates me, um, you know, cause, um, you know, I think about women in my life, you know, who, who, um, you know, have been, I have a, a cousin who's a, who's a pediatric pulmonologist. My wife is an ophthalmologist. My, my mother is, uh, the administrative, um, head and the marketing director of a hospital, um, uh, in India. Um, so, you know, just, just hearing about that aggravates me because I, I'm, I'm sure, um, I mean, the fact that you've gone through this, I'm, I'm sure they would have faced it in some way, shape or form, um, in, in their respective professions, but never really had, um, the platform 
uh, or even the space. I mean, even within, you know, our families and communities to even like discuss this with, with, you know, with, with me or for example, with my father, or I, or I, I hope that they haven't experienced something like this. And, you know, if they have it and haven't discussed it, it's something which just aggravates me at a very visceral level. Um, and it, it is truly unfortunate that, um, you know, women have to, uh, experience this or, or face this. Um, what, what is, what would be your concluding message, uh, to, to male colleagues, uh, who even think of perpetrating, uh, these undertones, uh, in the workplace or even, even socially, I mean, what is your, what is your message to, to your male colleagues? Well, and I, I think this is pretty simple. I mean, most most men have either a wife, a daughter, or a sister. And if you wouldn't say it to your wife, your daughter, or your sister, it's not appropriate to say to another woman, especially in the workplace. Um, and mm-hmm. and that's, that's kind of the main message, um, is that you just have to keep it professional. Um, you know, I, I think there's another step beyond that, because there's the there's the Me Too piece of it, and then there's just a, a, a global respect piece. And I think it's also our job to speak up, whether you're male or female, if you're in a position of authority, um, and speak up when you see these things. And call people out on the fact that it's not professional. Um, there was a picture circulated from one of the major European meetings that was totally unprofessional. It was you know, a picture of a woman's backside and it was supposed to be the same shape as an aortic valve. I looked at that image. Right. It was very, it was very disturbing to to me. Horrifying, yeah. horrifying that at a major international meeting, that somebody thinking it was funny would put that on a slide that was then going to be not only shown during the conference, but now that all conferences are accessible via the internet, you could find that picture all over. And Mm -hmm. I was very proud of the people that shot a screenshot of that and called that person out and said, this is not acceptable. And, you know, um, it's going to take a while, but it's going to take people stepping up and saying, this is not acceptable. Um, And it happens, you know, that was a just glaring offensive um, display but there are smaller, subtle things that we can be cognizant of on a daily basis. Every morning I start the day with rounds in the intensive care unit. And I often will just step back and watch kind of the interactions. And the male residents often have this level of respect from the nursing staff. And they listen to them and they interact with them as if they're one of the attendings. But sometimes the female residents they'll talk over the top of and they're doing something else. And I make a point to stop and say, Dr. Smith, she is presenting right now and she deserves all of our attention. Let's please give Dr. Smith our attention and we'll get through this patient's case. But it's going to take that for a while until people recognize that there is no difference between those male trainees and the female trainees, just as there's no difference between the attending female surgeons or male female surgeons. We're all just surgeons. Yes, you know, thank you for uh, that very concluding final, um, you know, discourse, for lack of a better word. Um, I, I truly hope um, this serves as um, a catalyst for, uh, you know, the, the male colleagues to just 
uh, be mindful of what they're doing, what they're saying, what they're thinking, and just give um, you know our female colleagues the the due respect and 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 the the due space and and and, the, and just the due freedom that all of you deserve. Uh, so thank you for all your work and uh, your leadership and your voice and um, um, you know just being the flag bearer for the uh, next generation of, of physician colleagues. Uh, you know, both men and women alike. Um, it's been my honor and my privilege having you on the show. And um, I know we've had a little bit of a back and forth in trying to arrange for this, but thank you for your patience. And it was really good to have you. Thanks for the conversation. Thank you for the opportunity. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Dear cardiologists, we want to make this podcast about you and for you. So please email us your critical thoughts, comments and questions at podcast at radcliffe-group.com and visit uscjournal.com for more information. You can also follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram at Radcliffe Cardiology for daily updates. Join thousands of cardiologists and become a Radcliffian by registering to radcliffecardiology.com. You will receive regular newsletters and gain access to hundreds of expert interviews, educational webinars, clinical cases, and peer-reviewed articles from our six medical review journals on general cardiology, interventional cardiology, arrhythmia and electrophysiology, cardiac failure, and vascular and endovascular surgery. Thank you.